Welcome to episode 15 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Today I'm talking about To Each His Own from 1946. Olivia de Havilland won her first Oscar for Best Actress in the Role. You can find it on YouTube, although the print is kind of fuzzy. Not enough praise is lavished upon the films Mitchell Lyson directed. As far as woman's pictures go, he's the undersung hero when more credit often falls to George Cukor or William Wyler. Mitchell Lyson dazzles viewers with his talents for sets, costume, and especially lighting. In one scene set in a railway station, he adjusts the light to take 20 years off Olivia's face so that she transforms from middle age to a young beauty in the span of a few seconds just by adjusting the light that falls on her face. It's a breathtaking scene and a stellar reminder of how movies create magic. The Elevenses, those two deep furrows beneath her eyebrows, and the dark shadows under her eyes just melt away. He didn't need to age her with latex or rubber appliances when lighting was more effective. Charles Brackett and Jacques Thoré's screenplay, along with Dodie Smith, who contributed but was uncredited, it offers one of the best scenarios for the mother who gives up her child plot lines. From the beginning, women in the audience are assured that they're in solid woman's pictures territory. Set in London during the Second World War on New Year's Eve amidst a blackout, Olivia de Havilland refuses to leave a taxi cab she held when a man tries to bully her out of it. She stands, or rather sits, her ground, telling him that it's her taxi and she needs it for an important engagement. She's on watch duty in the roof of a church. She's met by a grumbling man who objects to having women on the watch. He bosses her around. He insists that they follow protocol and make an inspection of the site. Olivia's character had replied that it was pointless since she knows the roof as well as the inside of her pocket. The man nags her about holding onto the rope on the perimeter around the roof or else she's liable to fall off. And then, as so often occurs in woman's pictures, yet so seldom does in real life, he falls victim to his own advice and falls halfway off the roof, clinging to the edge. Unlike a man in that situation, Olivia doesn't gloat. She doesn't say, I told you so. Even when he's hanging by his fingertips, he's trying to boss her, telling her, go and get help. Calmly, Olivia sets about hauling a bit of rope and tells him he won't last that long. She wastes no time saving him with a rope. She fashions a loop and tells him to put his foot into it and then secures the other end to the building and lifts him up safely. This little bit of business is important. Most people would panic and attempt to pull the person up by their own hand on impulse. The way she does it speaks volumes about Olivia's character. It shows viewers she comes equipped with a contingency plan to suit emergencies. She exhibits as much precision and training as an officer on the battlefield. She carries on, like so many other women had to do at the time, with the absolute minimum of fuss. The man, played by Ronald Culver, turns out to be Lord Desham, as moneyed and titled as they come. As a thank you to his partner on the watch for saving his life, he pays the ultimate vote of confidence by asking Olivia's character Jody Norris for her life story. 
He asks her some questions and learns that neither have family, so they work alone through holidays. He says they are both freaks, a pair of freaks for being solitary. But society doesn't look at them the same way. Jody would be a sad spinster and Lord Desham an enviable bachelor. This scene would have been the obvious place to insert the flashback, but this picture doesn't cheapen out. It holds back a little bit longer and makes the audience and Lord Desham wait. That her story is further prolonged returns the emphasis to her character, not his. She'll tell it when she's good and ready, not just because some man feels benevolent enough to listen. Also, the delay leaves her character, Jody Norris, with her privacy intact. How can you just tell all your painful things over tea? You can't. A soldier she knows from the small town back home swings by her table and tells her that Gregory Pearson is pulling into the train station. Off she runs, leaving Lord Desham with his mouth agape as he tries to ring for a table for them. When she arrives at the station, the train's been delayed. A young woman complains to the railway worker, then Jody, and then apologizes for being rude. We're all rude nowadays, Jody rationalizes. She sits on the coal platform to wait, and Jody's flashback is ushered in with Leeson's gorgeous play of light on her face to turn back the clock. The flashback begins in 1918. Jody is young, slim, and working in her father's chemist shop. Jody has a parade of suitors who try to capture her affection. She doesn't take any of them seriously until John Lund shows up playing a hero with the Air Force. She falls for him quickly. He pulls an old trick of running out of gas, only he does it with a plane instead of a car. They have sex and Julia gets pregnant. Using efficient storytelling, the character Belle, a harried mother with four kids and one on the way, reminds viewers what the social norms are for women at that time. The film wants to remind the audiences that women were married before they had children and they tended to have large families. Played by Alma McCrory, Belle is simultaneously overwhelmed by her brood and somehow content with them. McCrory wanted to play the role. It was her first time acting. She worked as a film editor for a long time with Lyson, cutting many of his films, including to each his own. She figured she recognized when an actor did something wrong for a part in the editing room, so she could figure out how to play the matriarch. In one of the best scenes in this picture, Mitch Lyson and the women improvised a masterstroke in moving the plot forward efficiently that wasn't in the original script. Lyson had recalled that he was tired of hackneyed stereotypes for telling an audience that a character was expecting a child by seeing the heroine knit booties or something. So instead, they created an inspired alternate version. Corinne, played by Mary Anderson, enters the chemist shop and takes a seat at the soda fountain counter. Jody asks if she would like her usual strawberry. Corinne replies that no, instead she'll just have a glass of plain cold milk. While Jody takes a ladle to the bucket in the cooler, Belle enters and asks for the same. Jody asks about the order, adding that she doesn't like milk. Belle explains that it's good for women in her condition. It builds bones or something. Corinne smiles to acknowledge she's pregnant too and sips her milk. And says, then, later, as Belle leaves, harried once again by her children's demands, that'll be me in five years. Then she leaves. Alone at the counter, Jody looks distracted as she pours a glass of milk for herself and drinks it without hesitating. 
After she has the baby boy alone in New York City, knowing that the father had been shot down and killed in France, she concocts a plan to keep the baby without anyone back home knowing it's really hers. But her plans fail when Corinne hears about the foundling and, distraught over losing her own first child, takes the baby into the home she shares with Alex, played by Phil Terry. He will officially divorce from Joan Crawford one month after the film premieres. The baby saves Corinne from dying of grief, so the baby stays with her. Jody decides to go to New York City on the invitation of an old beau who runs a business. Mac Tilton, played by Bill Goodwin, does what all decent men do for a lady in a jam in woman's pictures. He offers to marry her. But Jody wants a successful career. If she becomes rich, she'll be able to make a good home for her son. Mac told her about his cosmetic company, Lady Vivian, but he neglected to mention that it's really a front and what they make is bootleg liquor for $2 a bottle. This scene is one of my favorites because it allows Olivia to get busy and take charge. Really, I would relish a film about the Lady Vivian enterprise. She tells him after police bust up the racket that he could make more money the legal way with some face creams. And she knows the recipe from her father's shop. For a startup cost of $100, they could make 2,000 jars to sell. She busies herself around the shop floor, testing equipment and scouring the mixing bowls. She doesn't have any time to waste. If she puts her head down and works, she can win back her son. Her wisdom and faith are faultless, we think. The next scene jumps ahead in time. By the sets and the costumes, we know that Lady Vivian is a success. Perfume bottles as gorgeous as the ones imported from Paris for the summer rain scent and the women from 1939 are on display. The room's covered in rich, dark mahogany of the 1920s. Olivia's hair is delicately arranged and her frock is trimmed with chinchilla cuffs. She wields a long cigarette holder with authority. License shows us so much without having to tell us anything with dialogue. The nurse Daisy from the maternity ward, played by Victoria Horn, has followed Jody into the cosmetics business. She wears a stylish feathered hat. She serves the story by acting as a one-woman chorus to warn her friend against her plan to get her son back. She uses her own life story to persuade Jody from taking the boy from Corinne. Daisy's grandmother didn't like how she was being raised, so she took her away from her mother. But Daisy loved her booze-soaked mother. Children aren't logical, she argues. Jody remains unmoved. Before she leaves, though, Daisy declares that she hated her grandmother until the day the old woman died. Mitch Lyson develops Jody's character in an unexpected way. She becomes conniving and bitchy. She's not the victim when she goes to see Corinne and blackmails her. Corinne may be hard to sympathize with, but now she's on the verge of bankruptcy. She has a husband who doesn't really love her and two children of her own. Although she tries to be firm and say the boy isn't for sale, Jody presses further. Corinne has to think of her own children. Then Jody picks up the phone and rings the bank. She speaks quickly to escalate Corinne's anxiety and pressure her. Will she approve the loan or leave her to dangle? Olivia's lips look like they recede and we see more of her teeth for a lupine effect. She smells the blood rushing from fear in her opponent. Olivia's voice deepens and becomes harsh. She wants to take the boy away today, now. Corinne submits. 
Olivia avoided playing the bitch or a bad woman. Here, when she does, we know it's born of desperation. Fast forward to when Gregory has been with her for a few weeks. She's delighted to have chased down an old balloon that looks like a horse or a donkey with a hat. Viewers know instantly that the boy doesn't care about it, and that also this has just been one present in a long succession of gifts meant to win over the boy. Gregory is glum when he returns with Daisy from the park. Olivia builds up her character's agony through the mismatch between maternal ache and her son's indifference to it. He loves the woman who has been his mother, even if she's not a very nice person. Jody does her level best to win the boy over. He doesn't want expensive presents. He wants his mother. Jody is his mother by fact, but not by feeling. When she attempts to reason with him and tell him the truth, that she's really his mother, once she says the word adopted, he breaks down in pain, remembering the schoolyard taunts. Crying, the boy says she has no right to say that to him, that his mother explained it meant she loved him more than the other kids because she chose him. Locked in the bathroom, inconsolable, what can Jody do? Olivia looks into a void, a long stretch of despair ahead of her, because she can't keep him. Instead, she gives him back to his mother, goes to London to open a Lady Vivian factory and forget her sorrows. Of all the many films with a plot about a woman who must give up her child, this one's the best. Like, like other women, though, who played a mother in this storyline, Olivia de Havilland does not succumb to self-pity. Lyson fought with Charles Brackett over a scene where the screenwriter wanted the audience to see Jody sob and sob over her loss. Brackett insisted. Lyson said even though it was weeks after production, they rebuilt the set and paid the actors to return. He objected throughout, arguing that if we see Olivia cry, then the audience won't. After a preview with the extra footage, Brackett sent a telegram to tell Lyson to take the scene out. The audience hadn't cried. Lyson was right. He said since Olivia didn't cry, the audience needed him to add more to the last scene because it ends so abruptly that cinema patrons stumbled out with tears. They needed a bit of time to dry their eyes. What makes her maternal grief even more palpable is that Jody isn't a hard luck case or a tragic like Ruth Chatterton and Madame X, Barbara Stanwyck and Stella Dallas, or Betty Davis and The Old Maid. Jody has an international success in business, and then when the war begins in London, she lends her factory for a munitions production. She has 1,500 workers under management. She's powerful. She may not have a family or a lover, but she's wealthy and influential, so she should be able to win back her son. On one level, viewers can see she's better off than Corinne, who knows that her husband doesn't really love her. She had railed at Jody earlier on, you sit in my chair and sleep in my bed and poison the air. And Belle, saddled with a husband who sits rocking a whiskey bottle instead of one of the many children they have, has a very hard life of drudgery, while Jody has servants, a gorgeous flat, and stylish clothes. Lyson's expert pacing inserts comic relief right before the big emotional wind-up at the end. Waiters fuss around in the kitchen to assemble a wedding cake at the last minute. A row of boxes on the bottom shelf labeled according to the various military branches are in view. In wartime, impromptu marriages are standard fare for men shipping off. They take out one tier for the Air Force and then uncover additional pieces to match, but the cake isn't real. The pieces are either cardboard or plastic and decorated with lacquer or enamel frosting. 
On the very top, they slide a single layer of cake to sit under the bride and groom. Again, the film lays emphasis on the benefits of always being prepared during wartime for all of life's emergencies. During hard times, a little romance and glamour has a humbling and humanizing effect for everyone. It's a reminder of what people are fighting for. I'll leave you with an excerpt from David Chiarchetti's Mitchell Lyson, Hollywood director, that mix of biography and interviews from his film production. Olivia de Havilland. Just before shooting, I had toured the South Pacific entertaining the troops and I caught a rare disease. My doctor managed to cure me when I got back, but I sh- my weight shrank to 97 pounds, which was 17 pounds under normal. Shooting in continuity, we could turn this to an advantage. Being very thin at the beginning of the story helped me to build the characterization. It gave the girl a frail, sensitive quality. Mitch lit me very carefully. In every scene, I had a key light and a broad to fill in so I wouldn't appear too hollow-cheeked. You are very beautiful in the first sequence, but you are also most beautiful in the scene in the airplane. Olivia de Havilland. Mitch diffused me. It was the only time he did that. It was his trump card, and he was saving it up until it really counted. Mitch had me eat a big lunch every day, so that when we got to the next segment where the girl is pregnant, I was slightly heavier. It was almost imperceptible, but the cheeks were fuller, and there was the feeling that time had passed. Unfortunately, at that point, we had to go back and retake some of the scenes in the drugstore because it was John Lund's first film, and he had moved around too much. I had only gained about five pounds, and you only saw my back since they cut in the close-ups of me that had been done earlier, but I was always very conscious of the weight difference. It could have been a hundred pounds to me. By the time we were filming the final segment where I'm middle-aged, I had gone several pounds over my usual weight. Edith Head got me a Frankly 40 foundation garment, which was really a corset several sizes too large. We filled it in with cotton. The aging of my face was accomplished with the most brutal lighting of my face. Mitch could have devised and very careful makeup. I had seen a series of photographs in Life magazine which traced changes in Winston Churchill's face from youth to middle age. As a young man, he had a very full mouth with a full upper lip like mine. As he got older, his upper lip shrank and got thinner and thinner until it disappeared. We did the same thing for Miss Norris, and Bill Wood, who was the makeup man, carefully painted fine little lines around my eyes and broke up the jawline to give me a slight double chin. When we got on stage to make a test, I was also decked out in a very brilliant white wig. When I stepped on set in the wig and the gold lame evening dress, all the electricians wolf whistled at me. I didn't look like a middle-aged lady. I was a glamorous platinum blonde. Mitch and I thought about Ray Milan's wife, Mal. Her hair had gone white when she was 27, and she became even more beautiful. We decided that white hair was far too exotic for Miss Norris, who'd become something of a drab little wren. Mitch had them dress my hair in a way he thought Miss Norris would do it, fashionable but severe. The hairdresser wanted to put a few gray streaks in, but Mitch wouldn't hear of it. He said, women with grown sons don't have to have gray hair these days, especially Miss Norris, who's in the cosmetic business. Just don't put any brillantine in it. John Lund. Olivia had what they called a garbo face in the business. Jean Tierney, too. That meant they could be photographed from any angle with any lighting. 
The only problem photographing Olivia was that she had pronounced bags under her eyes, but they would disappear with the right lighting. After we looked at the rushes of the scene where I was dancing with her in the beginning of the movie, Mitch said, We've got to do it over. I can see the bags under her eyes. There were a lot of extras in the scene, so it was very expensive to reshoot it, but that's the kind of perfectionist Mitch was. When she was supposed to look older, the bags under her eyes were very useful. Olivia de Havilland. This fantastic attention to details is one of the things that made Mitch Lyson a great director. You watch Hold Back the Dawn and To Each His Own, and no matter how fine the detail, it is correct for the locale and the time. Most importantly, it adds something to the picture dramatically. Mitchell Lyson. George Marshall used to drive me crazy. His incendiary blonde had so many anachronisms. It's supposed to be 1908, and Betty Hutton lights a cigarette with a modern Ronson lighter. Then they're riding in an absolutely modern Pullman car instead of one of those horrible horsehair things they used to have. He used to just laugh it off. Nobody will ever notice that, Mitch. I said, they may not put a finger right on it, but they'll sense it isn't right somehow, and then you've lost them. The beginning of To Each His Own takes place in a drugstore, and by some miracle, Sam Comer of the prop department found a complete drugstore of that era in storage. We duplicated the room exactly, and everything you see on the shelves is in the exact correct place. The patent medicines of the time and the bare grease for the hair. We hired the druggist who had kept it all those years as a technical consultant. He told us how he wrapped the face powder in in tissue paper and how he made cold cream, and we used all of that. When the government said we couldn't spend more than $5,000 on new materials during the war, we often bought authentic rooms of the period to get around it. It didn't matter how much they cost, since they were used materials, and I liked them because they were the real thing. When Olivia becomes the successful cosmetician, her office is an original mahogany-paddled room that somebody had installed in the early 20s. The important thing to me was always to create the right atmosphere. If you remind your audience in a hundred little ways that this is 1918, then the plot and characterizations become more real and more compelling. Olivia de Havilland. Mitch was a marvelous director from the actor's point of view. Phyllis Seaton was with us again on To Each His Own, and she helped a lot. John Lund and I would run through our lines with her in my dressing room while Mitch was on the set lining up the shot. We would talk over the emotions of the scene, the characters, and what they were thinking, but it was always Mitch who knew how to take all of the raw material and make the film. The scene in which she tells her father that she's going to get the child back no matter what, and he says she can't, and she gets hysterical, was extremely hard to do. Mitch said, I see it this way. She hasn't given up hope all this time, but now she loses control. She says this line and she falls across the counter. She straightens up a little and stumbles across the room and falls again on the other side. He demonstrated the motions to me slowly, and it began to take form in my mind. It was right, and I did it that way. It was always Mitch. Whenever I needed help, he knew what to tell me. Then I could see it. Then I could do it. To each his own could not have been made without Mitch, without his ability to see how every little bit of the film related to the film as a whole. He always knew exactly how much rehearsal to give us. He blocked it out, gave us our movements and our props. He asked us how we thought it should be done and did it that way whenever he could. Then he rehearsed it several times until we were comfortable with our props and we knew where our marks were on the floor. At precisely the right moment, he said, let's take it. 
you could go ahead and give it everything you had on the first take because you knew exactly what you were doing. So many times we printed the first take and did one more for protection. Then we went right on to the next scene, still fresh. Thanks very much for joining me. Join me next time when I talk about Joan Bennett and She Couldn't Take It, directed by Tay Garnett from 1935. Thanks very much. I got an island in the 